As we approach God's word in scripture, let us do so with prayer. Would you pray with me? Reveal, O God, your glory to our eyes. Open our hearts to Christ's love. Disperse from our minds any darkness and fill our lives with your light. Protect us, O God, from thoughts without action. Guard us from words without life. Grant us wisdom to walk in your ways and open us always to the guiding of your spirit. Amen. Our first scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John in chapter 6, beginning with the first verse. It can be found in the Pew Bibles in the New Testament on page 79 of the New Testament, the Greek Testament. It is the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which comes, uh, the story is told in all four Gospels, sometimes even twice in a two of the Gospels. But today we hear it as it comes to us from the Gospel of John. Listen now for what the Spirit has to say to the people. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat there with his disciples And now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up, he saw a large crowd coming toward him. And Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. And now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, Jesus told his disciples, "'Gather up the fragments left over.'" so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people who saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of the practices that families often teach their children, and one of the practices that 
my parents taught me as a boy is giving thanks. And perhaps the most intentional experience of learning to give thanks happens around the dinner table. Now, each person in my family growing up was, had their own prayer that they had learned uh, so that when it came time for them to offer gratitude and grace at the dinner table, we would each pray our own prayer. The one that I was taught is a traditional one, and I've learned over the years that many people have learned this in, sometimes in, in, uh, with some different words and sometimes even sung, but mine is spoken, and it goes like this. Be present at thy table, Lord, be here and everywhere adored. Thy creatures bless that we might feast in paradise with thee. Now around the table that my wife Emma grew up at, their prayer was sung. It was a common prayer the whole family shared. And it goes like this. For health and strength and daily food we praise thy name, O Lord. Again, I've learned that others share this prayer, other families. It's a prayer that's sung to different tunes, sometimes with different words, but nevertheless, the spirit of grace and gratitude is offered with the prayer. Now, my wife Emma and I, we have our own children, and we've been teaching these prayers. We've been saying and singing prayers of gratitude around the table, And we've been doing this since Naomi, before Naomi, our oldest daughter, who's almost three, could even have words to speak. Likewise, Phoebe, now about six weeks old, is learning these same prayers, and she can barely take a bottle yet. But it's clear, though, after several years, Naomi has begun to embody, learn the rhythm of these prayers, the cadence of these words, they've become a part of her, a part of her language, a part of her understanding of what happens around the table. Whatever way you cut it, giving thanks, offering gratitude is meaningful. And so as we begin to teach our children to live lives of gratitude, I'm beginning to recognize that The gratitude is more than isolated actions or simple practices that we undertake. Now, gratitude is a a buzzword these days. It's really popular among the self-help and self-realization exercises that are becoming common practice. And I think this is exciting that gratitude is becoming so typical, so common. It's being reported on in the New York Times even as people do gratitude journals or post 30 days, 100 days of gratitude on Facebook. These are exciting ways to think about gratitude, but it's also much more than just these practices. It's much more than just positive thinking done with inward looking. Gratitude I'd like to argue, is not the new spiritual kale. Rather, it's an ancient practice. It's something that we have been passing on generation through generation as part of a faithful identity. Gratitude is meaningful because of this identity. And in the Christian faith, gratitude is a part of a faithful identity that is rooted specifically in the grace of God. 
And we enter into this conversation this morning through the scripture. Now the story of Jesus feeding this crowd of 5,000 is a story of Jesus embodying both grace and an expression of gratitude. Now the disciples have named the problem, and it's a problem that we can probably identify with and understand in the 21st century. Six months' wages would not be enough, enough to buy bread that would give each of these even a little. But there's a boy. There's a boy, and he has five loaves, and he has two fish. And you can almost see, you hear the disciples doing the calculus. Could we make it work? Could it be enough? But Jesus knows it's not enough. And it's a problem that we hear regularly in these 21st century lives. There is not enough, not enough food, not enough money, not enough. And while Jesus sees what the disciples' human problem is, Jesus knows that it's enough. It's enough when approached with grace and gratitude. If we read this close, if we dig deep into the story, we realize that among the disciples, there's also not enough recognition of the grace that exists in this moment. Now Jesus, always one for challenging the status quo, says to the disciples, make the people sit down. And once seated... Jesus takes the bread and gives thanks. And Jesus distributes the bread and the fish and the people among this crowd eat as much as they want until they are satisfied. And at the end, they gather what remains and it is more than what they started with. This miracle, this act of God, this sign, as John calls it, begins with Jesus giving thanks to God. Gives thanks. When facing for what humans would see as an an improbable situation, an impossible situation, Jesus doesn't ask for help or or seek attention or or really anything at all. Instead, Jesus is giving thanks. Jesus offers gratitude. And in the Greek, in the language of the New Testament, the word here is eucharistas, which means having given thanks, literally translated. Now, when the simple offer of five loaves and two fish are made where before there was nothing, what Jesus chooses to do is offer gratitude. There's a reason for this. In in an understanding of this text, there's a Jewish scholar named Amy Jill Levine. She's a Jewish scholar who studies the New Testament, and she notes that this moment in this story resembles a Jewish practice called Barkat Hamasan, which in Hebrew means blessing for nourishment. And Jesus, being Jewish, was likely to have lived out this practice of giving thanks, 
making this blessing for nourishment. And in practice, it actually would consist of four separate blessings directed toward God about the community, about the needs of the community, about the hopes of the community. But each blessing begins by naming God as the merciful one. O oh God, 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 the merciful one. Each time it's said, it's the beginning invocation of one part of a prayer four times. And each one is a prayer that asks for God's compassion in the space of the table where it's being offered. But after giving thanks, Jesus feeds the crowd. Now in the other Gospels, when the food is distributed, Jesus gives it to the disciples and they take it out to the crowd. But here, there's a distinct difference in that John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the one who feeds the people directly. It is a sign that God feeds the people, that generosity and the source of generosity comes from God. And so as Jesus gives thanks and turns to the crowd, we see God being provocatively generous. And it's a curious moment. Jesus feeds everyone. There's no question about who Jesus will feed. There are no questions asked whatsoever. Jesus doesn't ask when they had their last meal or if people brought their own food or if they have money to go and get their own food. Jesus doesn't ask where they are from or where they are going or who their family is. There are no restrictions whatsoever on receiving this generous offer of food. Jesus doesn't question whether anyone deserves it. There is absolutely no judgment whatsoever. Jesus simply feeds the people. People are hungry. People are fed. Sit, eat, taste, see, feast. This moment, this offer of food is pure grace uninterrupted grace, grace of abundance. And it takes a moment to sink in, really. You could breeze right by it and almost not notice it. It takes time and experience to recognize. And eating in this field is no moment of dine and dash. There is no fast food here. It is not the meager food offered by the disciples to the people so they can get back to their work of doing what disciples do. No, this is a moment where Jesus clearly makes it known. This space, this space of eating and of sharing, this space of gratitude is what they're supposed to be doing. The Episcopal Bishop, Michael Curry asked a really good question about this story. He asked, how is it that God is trying to feed the world, not on fast food, but but on gourmet food that gives life, whole food, 
nourishing food, a blessing for nourishment. This is a moment of Jesus pointing to food that gives life. And why does it give life? When I think about this, I step back and there are two profound realities that I'm struck by that are illustrated in this story. The first is that abundance, the source of abundance comes from God. It is a gift. And abundance is freely given by Jesus in this story. And abundance is a matter of gratitude and of spirit. Not material, not ownership. Gratitude and spirit. The second is that abundance occurs in community, not just to individuals. It occurs where people have gathered together. Abundance is life taking shape where God and people are living together. Life takes shape where God is offering gratitude and grace and people are responding. Life in abundance takes shape because of God's grace. A spiritual thinker, author, John Philip Newell, wrote in a book called Christ and the Celts this, Grace is not given to make us something other than ourselves, but to make us radically ourselves. Grace is not given to implant in us a foreign wisdom, but to make us alive to the wisdom that was born in us in our mother's womb. Grace is given not to lead us into another identity, but to reconnect us to the beauty of our deepest identity. In a life of faith, reconnecting to this deepest identity comes with a call to give our thanks. Jesus models it in this story. We are to make our blessing for, for nourishment to God, for our community, and for the life of the world. Now, turning to the world to make a blessing of gratitude in our world is a provocative action to take. Diana Butler Bass, a, a church historian who writes a lot about the life of the church, wrote in a book that she wrote about gratitude this. She writes, in recent years, neuroscientists have discovered that fear and gratitude don't exist in the same parts of our brains. Fear resides in the amygdala, the reptilian part of our brain. Feelings of gratitude activate our neocortex, the front of our brain, with the, our higher thinking and more recently involved capabilities. Indeed, researchers now believe that gratitude and fear cannot exist at the same time. That gratitude actually processes fear, effectively driving fear out, taming it, and giving human beings the possibility of acting with courage, hope, joy, and compassion. Gratitude is a gift that is rooted in God's grace, but gratitude, it turns out, has profound implications for our physical, emotional, spiritual lives. And if we live out 
an identity of faith that's rooted in gratitude, we're living out these profound implications. One more story for you. It's not necessarily a story about faith, but I think it is one that is a real lesson in grace and gratitude. Now, I really love World Cup soccer. And this year, without a United States team or a Team Canada to root for, I supported Belgium in this year's World Cup. Now, I lived in Antwerp, Belgium for a year when I was a teenager, so it wasn't a totally random choice. But when Belgium got to the quarterfinals, I was ready. They were finals bound. I just knew it. But if you were watching that game between Belgium and Japan in the quarterfinals, you knew or you would know that it was looking pretty bleak for Belgium. Japan, vastly the underdog, had a very strong edge with a couple goal lead. But at the very end of the game, something changed. And Belgium dug themselves out of a deep hole for a very big win. But for all my enthusiasm, as you watch this game, you could see palpably on the faces of Team Japan's fans, you could see it on the faces of the team as they played this sense of heartbreaking loss, of almost having the win and having it slip out of their grasp. The whole mood changed when it became clear that Japan, this unlikely underdog that had a chance, was going to be packing their bags and going home. But after the loss, this is where the extraordinary act of grace happened. The Japanese team lined up in front of their fans in the stadium and in unison bowed as an act of thanks to their fans for their support that helped carry them so far into a tournament, farther than they'd ever been before in their country's history, farther than anyone expected. And when they left the field that day, they went into their locker room and they packed their bags and they collected their things and they did what no other team did. They cleaned the locker room. And the photo that CNN posted online, if you go and look at it, the locker room looks spotless. And on a table in the center of the locker room, there is a note, a card standing up, written in Russian, And it simply says, thank you. There is a powerful grace that is alive in the world that God is making known all over. Wherever we go, we are called to call, we are called, invited to draw on an identity of gratitude that lives inside each of us, that lives among our community and our relationships. For God is turning toward the world with grace and with gratitude. And we are invited to respond with our thanks.
May you have eyes to see this grace. May you have ears to hear it and hearts to embody the gratitude that we've been given everywhere you go, this day and always. Thanks be to God. Amen.